Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. All right, folks, we just got done um, recording episodes, uh, deep dive episodes of all the Western quail species. So now we're going to talk about hunting all those birds. And we've got two guys from Montana. Yeah, from Montana. We actually got three guys from Montana, but two guys who have hunted all those birds, left Big Sky the last couple of years, uh, and then went quail hunting for all of those Western species. So it's going to be a really fun episode to listen to to a couple of fellas who learned on the fly how to hunt Gamble's quail, Mern's quail, Scaled quail, uh, Mountain quail, um, Valley quail, and of course, Bob White. So that's the focus of this episode. And the unique wrinkle to it is um, these fellows are also Pheasants Forever chapter volunteers in Montana. They're part of the Flathead Valley chapter in Kalispell, um, but they're passionate upland bird hunters, including quail species. So to help me with this episode, are making his triumphant return to On the Wing podcast, our, our regional representative for the state of Montana, Chad Harvey. Chad, thanks for making time. How are things in Montana? They're looking pretty good today. I mean, uh, spring is here for sure. I know uh, I've got a couple roosters growing in my backyard and the turkeys are roosting just down the street. So um, that signifies the time of year that, uh, you know, it's ready to get outdoors again. It, it, from what I understand, it was a relatively mild winter across the northern tier, Montana, North Dakota. Uh, is that is that accurate for where you are? Yeah, I think by Montana standards, particularly over the last couple of years, this has been an easy one. We are getting some late snows here, but that, you know, uh, I think the birds made it well into December, January before they really got hit with anything hard. So we're we got some good, you know, forecasts for the for the season coming up this year. And uh, we finally have some um, chapters getting back online with events this um, this May. So you got some banquets on the horizon in Montana, too. Yeah, a couple coming up. Uh, it's been over a year since any major large banquet in, in Montana. I think the last one was May or March 14th of 2020 uh, in Missoula. Mm-hmm. But uh, we've got a big banquet coming up in Billings on May 15th, um, as well as, uh, you know, I also cover the states of Washington, Idaho, and Oregon now. We've got a couple coming up over there as well. So it's good to see people getting back out and doing things, uh, gathering again safely, of course, and being able to raise some dollars to put more mission in the ground. Speaking of uh, gathering, after we're done with this podcast, you're going to gather with our guests in search of some spring gobblers. Uh, why don't, uh, without further ado, introduce uh, the two guys that uh, are volunteers for Pheasants Forever, but uh, also buddies of yours. Sure. Yeah. And uh, I guess the best way to, to start to introduce them is for quite a while now internally, I've always had a competition maybe with myself to win my weekend. And I kind of gauge that by getting on social media on Monday morning and be like, yeah, I had more fun than them. Yeah, I had a better hunting trip than them. And I used to win that all the time. Um, <laughs> so I met Tyler and Brad Heine. And uh, these guys are always, not necessarily on the weekends either, texting me with pictures of big bucks, big bulls, tailgate full of birds, out fishing. It doesn't matter what it is. So these guys are real big outdoorsmen, uh, Montana natives. Uh, I think several generations, in fact. But uh, yeah, first is... Tyler Heine is the uh, president of our Flathead Valley chapter in Kalispell, and, and uh, Brad is Brad Heine is his younger brother, who's a hunting guide, fishing guide, probably, well, taxidermist. What else you do, Brad? I mean, <laughs> just about a little bit everything. everything. Probably, honestly, I interact with a lot of hunters. The best killer I know. So, <laughs> well, that's yeah. high praise coming from you. Yeah. 
So, Tyler, you, you, you were introduced as the president of the uh, Flathead uh, Pheasants Forever chapter, Flathead Valley Pheasants Forever chapter. How'd you get involved? What's, uh, what's, what's your background? Well, when I was a kid in high school, I joined the uh, youth shooting league that the chapter put on. And that was geez, like 15 or so years ago now. And went through the program then and got married, went to college came back and figured I should get involved again and give back to a program that I had a lot of fun with as a kid. And I went to a few meetings and next thing you know, in the middle of a banquet, the old president retired and said, you're the president now. And <laughs> we went from there. <laughs> what, uh, what, what is your chapter focus on? What, what sort of projects uh, is it Our, habitat focus or kids or every, all of the above? The big thing is kids. Um, we've had a pretty well-known youth league the last now. We've had it going about 24 years. Um, some years we have up to about 85 kids there. Uh, we're on a little bit of a down streak now, but we're building it back up because we had to switch days of the weekend that the youth league was on. But we do a eight-week shooting program starting in January. Take the kids through all different kinds of uh, clay shooting, doubles, trap, skeet, sporting clays five stand and then we do a little mini banquet finale down at a sporting clays course and take the kids through that and we got all the bunch of the board members help out with that and that that's our main focus right now what uh what what do you find most rewarding about uh being connected with an event like that it's pretty fun to watch the relationships of people grow you know there's coaches like for example a coach this year uh, hasn't been able to be involved the last few years because uh, he's a snowbird. And now this year, um, he's been able to go up there and see what he's been helping with the last few years and see the program and see all the kids excelling. And it's you, you build relationships with the kids and the other instructors, and you're all working together towards the same goal of helping everybody have fun and improve their shooting while getting to know guns and ammo and clay shooting and eventually get people more outside hunting. And it's fun to see the the kids can start our program as an 11 or 12 year old. And some of them don't quit until they're 18. So you see them go through five, six years of shooting and the improvements they make and the stuff they start to do on their own. And we're starting to add youth hunts and a little more of that into the mix to get kids closer to being able to go outside by themselves and go on their own hunting trips. Yeah, very fun. Um, what what do you do for a living? What's your background? I own a sod farm, so I I lease land here from the family farm in Kalispell, and I'm I'm a farmer, and so we're only busy in the summers here. And April to October, we're just super super busy, and that's how I can go do this stuff in the winter. That uh, that answers one of my questions because I think. When Chad introduced this concept of a podcast with you guys about chasing the quail slam, I think he said it was 23 days long. I was like, how the heck does anybody get 23 days off of work? Well, you own your own business. And then your brother, uh, he's introduced, Chad introduces him as a, as a hunting guide and a fishing guide. So my assumption, Brad, is that you're self-employed too, and you make your own schedule. Yep, that's correct. Pretty much from June 1st until August 31st, I'm on the river every day guiding fishing. And then uh, September 1st through November 29th this last year, I'm guiding hunting every day. Wow. So I'm pretty busy that time of year, but then as soon as, as, soon as December 1st hits, it's playtime. How, how long have you been a guide? Uh, I've been a fishing guide now for eight years. Uh, this last summer was my eighth summer that I finished up. So as soon as I turned 18, I started rowing a boat down the river. And how long have you been guiding hunters? Uh, about, I think this is my fifth year now. This will be my fifth. So four years into doing the fishing, I was like, you know, this is, this is pretty fun. And I'd like to make a little more money at it. So uh, might as well start guiding hunts because I like doing that too. And it's gone from there and has been awesome. And compare and contra contrast the fishing um, clientele versus the hunting clientele. Oh boy. Um, the, I always tell everybody that the hunting people are kind of more my people. Like, uh, hmm. those guys show up and they've got the same mindset I do all year. Um, hunting, fishing, they all do everything and, and they're kind of more 
just they they got the same mindset I do about being outside. Whereas where I'm located in Montana, we don't have people specifically coming here to fish. Mm. Um, they'll they'll come here for tourism. Uh, they come to Glacier Park. They come to Big Mountain, and then they go. You know, we watched we watched a river run through it like ten years ago. We should try fly fishing. <laughs> and so I do a lot of uh, casting lessons before we start our fly fishing trips, and and I get a lot of people who are not necessarily outdoorsy or outdoor oriented. Whereas if you're booking a hunt, I mean, you've been, you've been hunting before and, and you're uh, very, very few cases are people doing their, their first hunt with me. How many times has a fly caught your ear? You mean last summer or total? <laughs> uh, total. <laughs> uh, a lot. Uh, no just, kidding. Yeah. I'd say five times last summer, I think was my record. I'm getting pretty good at ducking it. So like I can tell what cast is coming and I duck it, and usually the guy behind me gets hooked. So I'm wow. I'm very good at pulling hooks out of people as well. What What do you find uh, most rewarding about guiding? Uh, guiding, just in general, I like my favorite with the fishing is I get Jim from last summer, and he calls me, and he's like, "Hey, man, I, I was up there this last summer. I'm standing in Cabela's right now, and you know, I I, I haven't been able to stop thinking about fly fishing. And what kind of fly rod should I buy?" And just, just knowing that I got somebody hooked on something that I'm so passionate about is uh, very, very rewarding. Yeah. So, and then the the hunting is full circle. All my hunting clients usually keep in touch with me throughout the year. And uh, it's just, it's all pretty awesome being able to know that I was the reason that somebody had a very, very awesome time in Montana and a memorable experience. So when I've, I, I've never professionally guided but I've taken mm -hmm. a lot of folks out like media hunts or corporate hunts or different things. And there's a lot more pressure on like from the outside looking in, everybody thinks that you have the world's best job, right? Like yep. you get to fish and hunt and I do. And to, a, to an extent you do have the world's best job, but I do. there's a hell of a lot of stress and pressure that comes with that. That maybe doesn't meet the eye. Right. Oh, definitely. Uh, I think Tyler can recall all this too. I think my first three years into guiding fishing, I didn't have one morning where I wasn't sick before my fishing trip. Uh, and just, cause I worry a lot. I get super anxious and, and then just knowing that somebody's depending on me to like kind of add to their vacation and make their day. Mm. Uh, it was stressful being an 18 year old kid starting off guiding fishing, but now I'm confident enough in my abilities, like, and I know this river well enough that I know that if I get Mr. and Mrs. Johnson, that's who we always refer to as our fishing clients. <laughs> sure. Uh, if I get them in the boat, I know that I'm going to show them a good time. And if the fishing's terrible, I can still make it a good day. And uh, usually I'd probably say 98% of the trips are super awesome. And uh, they go, go perfectly as planned. Really? Well, you got a good batting average then. Yeah. So it's, it, it, with all the guides fishing and hunting I've talked to, and it, this is the first we've ever talked, but I feel confident I can ask you a question right out of the blue, um, and you'll have it have a story for me. What's that? And you could change the people's names, but what's that? What's that story from your eight years of fishing or four years of hunting of that that guide trip that you know? It, is your favorite story. Maybe it's like everything went wrong or it's the, you know, it was the monster elk or what, whatever it was. What's, what's the quintessential story of your guiding experience? I've got, I've got a lot of the pretty worst days of fishing. <laughs> um, and then like, I always tell people if, if I get a bad hunting client that shows up, it's, it's super easy. Cause I know right where most of the deer are and we can get them gone usually pretty quick that morning. Hmm. Like uh, my record this year, we had a, a hunt, a hunter show up and uh, he was leaving by noon. He had killed his deer in 15 minutes. Wow. But um, probably the highlight, uh, I got a guy to bighorn sheep hunt and that was a, uh, that's pretty rare. Mm -hmm. um, they only give out 10 tags in that district that the, the hunt was in. And um so yeah, I got I got I had to go in and scout and find where the rams were and I called the guy, told him that I found them and and uh it was going to actually be pretty brutal getting in there, but he calls back and goes, "Well, I can't come because I got to leave on a moose hunt." I'm like, "Oh no." 
So he's like, well, I can be there in three weeks. And sheep, they're, they're just, it was pre-rut at this point in time. So they're going to be five miles from where I found them at. And I found 14 rams in two different bands. Wow. And uh, four shooters for sure. So we get back and the guy goes, okay, well, I can come. And it snows a foot. And then it gets 55 degrees. And if, if you've done anything in eastern Montana, you'll know that uh, you get any precipitation or moisture and you are not going out into anything remotely rugged and uh, because the gumbo is just so bad. So mm-hmm. we go out and, uh, well, we kind of wait on the weather, wait on the weather, and it's supposed to get real cold. And this guy has not made it out once the whole season. And uh, he's been stuck twice trying to get out. And he's got a once-in-a-lifetime tag. And uh, so this was kind of, he called us and was like, I need help. And uh, so we were kind of talking and kind of tentatively planning this day. And he goes, well, I'm coming. I've got no idea where to go. Cause I've been busy guiding deer hunts every day. And uh, so we get, he, he shows up to camp and uh, it was way warmer than it was supposed to be. So nothing froze up. And uh, I was like, all right, well, we'll see you at two 30 in the morning. Cause we got a long drive to get in there. And, so he's like, perfect, and got all his stuff ready right on time. We had breakfast burritos. We warmed them up, and I, of course, slept because I wasn't driving the pickup. I had another kid with me to help pack out. And uh, we go in, and we're uh, going to go down this road. And it's, this road, I mean, is like a razor ridge, and so it has to be frozen to get in there. And we're going, and so we get right to the bottom of the road, uh, and then it was going to be an hour drive to get in there. We get right to the bottom, and there's a foot and a half of water all over the road. Hmm. so so that put the kibosh on that plan and we had to stick to the gravel road well we go driving down the gravel road and i've got one big canyon where i've seen sheep in before and i was like wow well we better check there and we go get hiking out there and uh i drop into two other little steep spots on the way to check this big deep drainage and i i noticed the guy's kind of lagging behind me i'm like is everything okay he's like well i didn't want you to give up on me or anything but i had achilles Achilles tendon surgery like a month and a half ago. And I was like, dude, like you should have told me this and we would have taken the flat way to get in here instead of going through these two little cuts. Like we could have, we could have gone super easy getting in here. And uh, so anyways, we take it slow and we get up there and I pulled up my binoculars and you know how you got that perfect circle in your binoculars Mm -hmm. dead, dead center of the circle. I hadn't been looking for 15 seconds. There's a sheep standing right in my binoculars. And mind you, he's got five days left of the season. And uh, I see this sheep turn his head and I can just see this huge flare of a horn. And I'm like, there's a big sheep. Let's go. And he goes, well, where, 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 where? I'm like, you don't even need to look at it. Let's go. And uh, so we started hiking this ridge. And of course, he's everybody's peeking, trying to see where it's at. And all of a sudden it spots him. I'm like, oh, no. And it's about half a mile away from us. Starts starts running right at us. Uh, at you. I guess, oh, yeah. Right at us. Cause it's, it's peak rut and sheep, sheep tend to be, they get named to be pretty dumb, but I, I, I like to say that they're inquisitive. <laughs> so he was, he was coming over to check us out and uh, we got hidden and, and he came up and turns out there was two sheep, uh, a little ram and then the big ram. And they were both together. They started feeding up on this hillside and we got in about 300 yards. And I mean, we're a half hour into this hunt and the guy was going to be there for five days. It was looking like we were going to have two good days of weather. And uh, he's sitting there looking at the sheep. He's got his great grandfather's rifle from World War II. Uh, he's got an old 30 6 with a four power scope on it. Hmm. And I'm like, that sheep's at 300 yards and we can't get any closer. He's like, well, do you think we should shoot it? And I'm looking at this sheep. I've never guided a sheep before, I've never even touched a dead sheep. And uh, he's like, you think it's Boone and Crockett? I'm like, <laughs> no idea. And uh, he's like, well, should we pass it? And I'm like, Randy, you've got like the perfect opportunity to shoot a sheep. We're 30 minutes into it. You've got five days left the season. You're shooting this sheep. Yeah. And uh, I mean, you kind of feel bad because it's you've looked over one animal and you got this once in a lifetime tag. But so he ended up uh, getting lined up on it and. I was like, do you like shooting prone? And he's like, no, I like to shoot kneeling. I was like, well, you're going to shoot prone. <laughs> <laughs> so I throw my backpack down and he gets all lined up on it and just boom, perfect shot. I mean, that sheep did not move once one inch and he's laying there perfectly on this flat plateau. We were going to have a half a mile pack back to the pickup. And all of a sudden he straightens out one of his legs and rolled off of a cliff about 200 feet down this edge. Ugh. 
And so, I mean, we get up and we're, I could have thrown a rock and hit the sheep and we were 120 yards from the sheep. So we, uh, we figured out how to get it out there. We got it all packed out and, um, I had, we actually had to break it down to get it back up to him where he could even touch it. So he didn't get to touch his sheep hole, mm. but, uh, it ended up scoring 190 inches, which wow. was, it was 10 inches above Boone and Crockett at first morning, 30 minutes into it. And, uh, so we're riding back the best part of the whole hunt. We're riding back and he's just cloud nine. I mean, he's asking a million questions, super excited. The, my buddy and I are both just wore out cause we just had to pack the sheep out and pack it all the way up a cliff. We probably should have had climbing gear with us. And, uh, he just goes, well, boys, how many sheep hunts do you guys do a year? I mean, you knew right where that thing was. We both looked at each other and we're like, Randy, that's the first dead sheep either of us has ever touched. Uh, and he goes, I am so glad you guys told me that afterwards. <laughs> and now you could go to your website and it says that you're 100% successful on yep. sheep. <laughs> yep, exactly. Exactly. Oh, so. the, you did not disappoint. That was a terrific story. Yeah, that's probably the most memorable because just like uh, the outfitter I work for, he's only guided three hunts and three sheep hunts, and he's been guiding uh, hunting for. 30 years now. Hmm. So pretty special that I got to do that my third year into guiding. Did you have an opportunity to, to taste any of the meat from that sheep or did he take it away? I did not. He, uh, I, I really wanted to because grandpa's got hundreds upon hundreds of stories of being up in uh, the Northwest territories in Alaska, eating sheep ribs over the fire. So I really mm. wanted to take the ribs out, but with where we had that sheep killed at, um, we actually, we, we deboned the ribs. I didn't get to cut the whole rack off like I wanted to, but, uh, he took everything with him and told me it was fantastic. Yeah. What is, you know, with all the guiding and fishing, what's the best, what's the best meal out of everything? Uh, the best meat, like my favorite wild game. Exactly. <sighs> there's, there's nothing better than cooking elk tenderloin over the fire mm. from, from the day you killed it, you're exhausted, coming back, cutting up a couple pieces, no seasoning, nothing, just cooking them over the fire. I, I really enjoy that. And then um, let's see, my favorite animal that I've eaten. I really like antelope. Mm. Antelope's really good if you, if you properly take care of it. Right. Um, every antelope I kill now is uh, skin off and in the cooler within 30 minutes of it mm -hmm. dying. And it's, it's some of the most tender, flavorful meat you'll have from a wild animal. Yeah, that's always the key, right? With with pronghorn is getting them on ice and getting yep. them gutted and in you know instantly as we can. Yep, exactly. All right, so let's let's transition to the quail slam because you you've uh, proven your credentials hunting sheep. So who, uh, which one of you fellows, Brad or Tyler, came up with the uh, with the original concept and? Um, maybe whoever came up with the idea, take the lead on, on, uh, the story here. It you never, go or me. I'll go. It okay. never really, we never really set out and said, let's do the slam until we realized how close we were to doing it. We, it, it kind of, the idea kind of came when we were in Arizona, the first time we went down there we said, well, we've got three of them. We're down here. It took us. We had the Merns figured out, and then Brad and I went out on our own and figured out the desert quail down there in Arizona. And then once we got those three done, we were like, well, valley quail, we know how to get them. And, and then we took a buddy deer hunting, and he said, well, I know how to get mountain quail. And we said, okay, we better do this thing. So the first time it took us a couple years, and then this last winter, we had worked hard all year, and we said, well, we're doing going to do all these trips. And uh, so we went to we do just kind of planned to do the three trips and then we saw it fell in place to do the quail slam again so we kept track of the days it took us and the second trip we did it in 23 days so it sounds like the first time was somewhat happenstance and then now it's become sort of a a deliberate pilgrimage is that accurate yeah this year for sure it was we uh we started it out and planned on trying to get it done there we had the first trip was at the end of december and then we got back from nebraska about the end of january about so all right so first trip so you're in montana 
where's your first destination? Where and I'm assuming you guys are driving, right? Right. So yes, because you, you got a dog in dog box, and so where are you going first? Where's your trip to? So this year we got in the truck and drove to Oregon first for the mountain quail and the valley quail. Okay. So tell me about hunting mountain quail because as I understand it, that's that can be that the closest comparison I've heard is chucker hunting. It's a lot of vertical. Yeah, it just depends. Um, they're in all different kinds of habitat in, in the area that we hunt them. And so they definitely were in different kind of cover than the valley quail, but at times you would get into both or you'd be in a river bottom and mountain quail would come out instead of valley quail. Hmm. But definitely when, when we did, when we were up higher chucker hunting, we ran into some mountain quail up in that country also. So they're, they're kind of more of that, they range higher, I guess I'd say, than the valley quail. I didn't realize you get you guys threw chuckers in there into your quail slam just for for a little extra fun, huh? Yeah, yeah. Figured <laughs> we better see how many species we could get. <laughs> All right, so mountain quail, and then you get down into the valley, and California quail start popping up. What's um? Start comparing and contrasting them for me. Are they? Are these birds holding on point? It, well. I guess I should ask you about your your dogs first. What do you what are you hunting with? We have German wire hair pointers. Okay. And my my dad breeds them. My wife trains them, and then Brad and I take them and hunt them all winter. So, how many are you guys hunting together at a time? On each walk, we never take more than two. Like if Brad and I go on a walk, at the most we'd have three dogs between the two of us. Okay. Uh, but on the trips, we would have at least eight dogs with us on each trip. Wow. And are, so mountain quail, are the, they holding pretty well when you, you're running your wire hairs? Are they mountain quail going to hold and you get? And... They, they seem to hold better than the valley quail for sure. And, and every covey is a little unique depending on what kind of cover you run into them in. Mm-hmm. But they definitely, and then, and then once you break the covey up, then they hold really well. And anytime you see TV shows or video YouTubes about valley quail, you know, it's the, the ones I've seen are just epic flushes, right? Like it's, you know, 40, 50 birds. You guys ever run into those monster valley quail flushes or are they a little bit more um, smaller in size? What do you think? I would say we do at times, but not as common as what's advertised. I mean, you, you do run into a big covey here and there, the valley quail. Um, more common for the giant coveys was the gambles quail. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had the epic flush of all epic flushes this year on gambles quail. Really? So Where yeah, was that? Into it. That was down in southern Arizona. Uh, we had one of the dogs locked up on point, and we always try to – when we get a dog on point, we always – communicate with each other and we both have those uh garmin callers and they go beep 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 mm-hmm. when the dog's pointing so and we both know and instantly we change and so we'll loop to where somebody's getting a shot no matter what and we're both safe and we automatically know where the other person's at so i'm standing up on this bluff right here and zeke one of our uh, wire hairs locks up on point right in front of me and a single gets up and flies straight away and easy shot boom dropped it and then it was just quail and <laughs> there was there was over a hundred quail in this covey probably that got up and and they just got up in waves i mean we'd stand there and boom shoot one and they keep going and the dog pointed and another group of them got up and it was crazy we were we were finally like we both killed a, a few birds and we're like we got to quit shooting we got to pick up all these birds and kind of get our wits about us again because it was just mind-boggling the wow. number of birds that got up and what do you attribute that uh that such a massive group to was it like perfect cover or just hard to understand why they were there it was good cover there there was a little more grass it was a super drought this year in arizona they're going on a really long drought driest it's been in about 25 years down there so this area had water and had good grass cover okay. um which helped help them to cooperate better for us. Okay. So we, we bounced a little bit from Oregon to Arizona. Was Arizona your next stop on that trip, or was there something in between, Tyler? 
Yep. No, we, we went from Oregon, came back, checked on the house and the chores and the critters, and then got back in the truck, left my dad at home this time, got in the truck, took a buddy and headed off to Arizona. Okay. So Arizona, that's, that's where you typically hunt gambles, scalies and merns down there. Yes. Yep. So we went down there with that intention, but also this year, we had we had been back there in 2018, and we had seen quite a few coos deer, and Brad had killed a javelina. So we had the truck really loaded down this trip. We had our Polaris Ranger, we had our bows, we had some rifles for predators, and uh, we were making a trip out of it. Did you bring a chest freezer too? We should have, <laughs> but just a cooler. <laughs> so so massive flush of gambles. Tell me about what you what you found for scalies in, in Merns? The scalies were very difficult this year, I guess is mm. how I'd put it. Um, most of the areas, there was less grass cover than normal because of the drought. So you'd see a covey and, oh, okay, let's go get them. Huh, wonder where they went. Never saw them again. Mm. And that happened multiple different times. Or if you'd, you know, you'd get out and try to flush them to get them to break into little groups for the dogs. And even then they must just, held together and spread out or stayed together and then just taken off running mm. we i did get into one covey one evening uh that i i surprised them they broke up on a grassy hillside and i that was the day i got my first limit of quail in arizona i had mm. got some gambles in the morning and that evening i finished it up with scalies and i think i killed five off point that evening with my two dogs wow and then brad Merns are a heck of a lot different than those desert species, right? It's yeah, they're the merns are crazy different birds. They uh if you're used to quail and you're used to quail hunting, uh merns will be like you went into Petco and started looking at a parrot. I mean, they're <laughs> they're just crazy little birds. I actually saw some on the ground this year. Uh I was hiking in to check a bunch of water holes and hang some cameras for deer. And uh, up on the road in front of me, just like grouse were, would be, they were out picking grit. And, I mean, if you if you don't know what Merns quail look like, you should Google it. M E A R N S. Uh, they're just got the most brilliant colors to them, and then they got like a big blonde Trump hairdo on top, and they're just they're crazy <laughs> funny looking. I've never uh, I've never heard them compared to Trump before. That's a new one. Oh man, me. it's it's so funny. They got like this slick back blonde top knot on top of their head, and it's just a big old fluffy yellow feathers. They, <laughs> they don't have that color anywhere on the rest of their body. Mm-hmm. But um, they are they're designed for digging up acorns. So they got monster feet on them, huge claws. Uh, and one of the ways we were told to hunt them uh, was to get in these shady draws under the oak trees and, and you find their dig marks. And so you, you kind of get to looking and all of a sudden you'd see little indentations in the ground about an inch or two deep where it looks like something dug and all of a sudden you'd look around and there'd be 10, 15 of them. Usually when you find that it's not too long and then the dog slams on point. Mm-hmm. And I mean, these dogs, they'll be pointing and it's just bare ground with just some leaf cover on it. And it, these, I would say they blend in the most out of all the other birds. Um, and these dogs would slam on point and the dog would be looking straight at the ground. And so you'd have about a foot area to kind of look through and figure out where this quail is. And you wouldn't find it. And it would fly right up from below the dog's nose. Just the craziest. It, it was incredible how well they were camouflaged. How well do you, um, I guess I'll, I'll ask Tyler this question. As you think about being in Montana as an upland bird hunter, and I'm assuming your dog probably get pretty experienced on pheasants and huns and some sharpies and maybe even maybe even sage grouse uh, a little bit in, in montana and then then as you go west mountain quail and valley quail you know they 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 act a little different from each other gambles and scalies are pretty similar but they're way different than merns how do your how how well do your dogs um and how quickly do they figure out the different birds as you move from geography to geography? Our dogs seem to do very well with it. I, you know, I've kind of exclusively hunted this line of wire hairs that we have, but we haven't had any problems except maybe in Arizona. The one thing the young dogs would struggle with is, you know, we'd go out and there'd be a covey and they'd point, 
but that whole covey because unless the coveys broke up they're running mm-hmm. so the, it takes a while for the young pointing dogs to figure out that these little buggers will just be running and they'll be a mile away i mean we we had some times where we literally ran a few hundred yards trying to keep the dogs running with us but they thought they should be pointing mm. and it kind of can be kind of hard on a pointing dog but they figure it out are your dogs um trained to steady wing shot and release or do they go they're with... just steady to shot okay gotcha so that does i suppose there's an advantage there on the really big run and scalies and gambles when they're moving so it allows the your pups to relocate as you indicate so at least yep. the veteran ones yep and we we figure we lose less birds on the ground because we're we just do it steady to shot so as soon as that bird goes down the dog's usually pretty close behind it okay and you, you mixed in a little bit of coos deer hunting and uh, javelina this year. What? Um, how much? How much effort to completely change up what you're hunting and, and find success? Well, that was the hard part. Was kind of coordinating, having the bird dogs and being fair to them, mm-hmm. and putting in an adequate time going out deer hunting. And uh, unfortunately, we didn't get a chase javelina this year. Okay. Uh, when we were down there last time, they had surplus tags, so we're like, "Ah, oh, sweet, there'll be surplus tags." There weren't, so uh, we didn't get a javelina tag this year. But if we go back next year, we're gonna apply for them and make sure that we get them because uh, they're pretty fun to hunt with a bow. And we saw plenty of them while we were down there. But, uh, yeah, changing up between the, the deer and the quail was, I don't know, Tyler Tyler had one spot where he was sitting for deer, and it was his favorite spot because there was quail running around him while he was sitting there. So it was – we kind of had to coordinate between the two of us, and he'd go out – most of the time he'd go out uh, bird hunting, whereas I'd, I'd stick to the deer. And uh, I'm just a little more into the big game rather than the upland, uh, whereas he is a diehard upland hunter. Did you find success with coos deer, Brad? That's that's a little bit of a bittersweet topic. <laughs> uh, first, first day when we got out there, we parked on the top of the hill, and we were glassing this spot where the previous time Tyler and I went down there, we were out predator hunting and found a giant coos buck on this hillside. And I showed everybody pictures after this. We'd, we'd had no coos deer experience. We weren't planning on seeing any of them. And we got down there the first trip and we saw probably 25 to 30 bucks. We're like, this is going to be easy. So this next trip, we get down there and we're glassing the one hillside. And Tyler goes, there's one, there's one, there's one. And there was four different bucks up on this one hillside with five does. And they were chasing them like crazy. And that was about it for all the rut activity that we saw the whole rest of the trip, actually. Mm. But, uh, we got to looking and there's a bobcat sitting right beside the deer about 10 yards from him. And, and the other guy who was with us was dying to shoot the bobcat, but we'd read all this stuff about coos deer and they're super spooky. And if you scare them, they won't come back. And so we're like, Oh, don't scare the coos deer. We don't know what we're going to see. And so then I went on a hike that day for hanging trail cameras and um, looking for water holes. And Tyler and uh, our buddy went quail hunting and they actually killed a couple quail that morning. And I think I saw, I think I saw 23 deer. Mm. And I mean, this was just one hike into the middle of a spot that we Google earthed. And we're, we thought we were set mm. like game time. We're, we're good to go. We're going to kill a deer in a day or two. And then we'll stick to hunting birds and predators. And uh, that first morning when I walked in, I had the biggest buck of the whole trip at 90 yards walking towards me. And uh, of course I, I mean, I, I must have bumped like a pea-sized pebble or something. They're the spookiest deer you've ever seen in your uh. life. Of course, he knew something was up. He's looking up on the hillside at me and just turned around and walked up into the trees. And knowing what I know now, after hunting them for 10 days, I would have snuck up and got a vantage point to where he was at and found out where he bedded. But I just saw this little tiny, uh, he's actually a six by six. Uh, he had stickers. He had a bladed main beam. Mm. Um, huge for a coos deer, I guess. But I'm used to the whitetails and everything up here. So I was like, eh, I can't tell how big that is. And I took video of him, of course. And knowing what I know now, I would have snuck up in there and found where he bedded mm. and tried to make a move on him or set up for that evening. But I kept hiking and saw a pile of deer. And uh, then we found out after that that they don't really have a pattern to them, um, that they're pretty hard to hunt with a bow. Uh, especially when it's as dry as it was and everything was crunchy. Um, 
and all sorts of stuff. So we proceeded to get, that was the closest, one of the closest encounters. And then uh, we got very frustrated, couldn't find any big bucks, couldn't see any rutting activity that we could know of. So we found a few does. Um, but then the last day of the trip, I got to 60 yards of a buck and the last five minutes of shooting light. And he needed to walk right around a tree and he went left into the thicker brush. And uh, that was the last I saw of him. And Tyler and I neither killed a coos deer. Um, we could have shot one doe the whole trip pretty much. Mm. It was like the best opportunity I had was one doe came into water one day. But it probably, but, uh, that whole experience will keep you coming back because it built up your appetite for more, didn't it? I'm addicted. Tyler's kind of fed up with it. But I'm <laughs> so, All the- Tyler's pretty good. <laughs> Tyler's pretty good at being patient for about five minutes and then he's over it. I, I'm with Tyler. I'd be bird hunting instead. Yeah. Uh, so, Tyler, you know, one thing I should have asked you right on the outset, um, Oregon, Arizona, uh, are these all public lands that you're hunting? It's a mix. In Oregon, we hunted a mix of public, some private. Uh, Arizona, it was primarily public i believe i think everything in arizona was public Mm. and then nebraska was private land and then the their walk-in access hunting program which uh nebraska has a great walk-in program down there open fields and waters yeah Yeah. the open fields and waters program so that's perfect uh intro tyler to take me to nebraska to to final the final bird on your slam and the king of uh, game birds for the southern United States. That's the Bob White. Uh, tell me about hunting in Nebraska. Yeah, so it was pretty interesting because we had no idea what we were doing. We, I looked around at maps and did research and tried to figure out where the closest Bob White was to Montana that we could go to. And <laughs> we had some help from different people kind of giving us ideas where to go and we loaded up and we got down there and Brad and I hunted the first afternoon and we found a few roosters, but no quail. And the next day we got up and I think we did 14 miles that second day, but we did manage to find the Bob Whites about the middle of the day. We got into a covey and we both killed our first one ever. And, hmm. and it, they're definitely a unique little bird. Uh, where Now, where'd you find them in, in Nebraska? Were you in like wheat stubble or, or more coolies, um, any pattern that you found them in, in, in Nebraska? Seems like they like the draws between the cornfields. So mm-hmm. it's, it's big corn country where we were. And you just kind of look for the grassy, brushy draws between the cornfields. And that's where they'd be most of the time. So as you're taking your dogs, all these different places, we talked a little bit about how um, they've adapted to the different birds. Uh, Tyler, what about snakes and cactuses and, you know, the different things? I suppose you guys encounter snakes in Montana, but anything on the trip with the, with your dogs, Tyler, that. They... We had no issues. You know, you get online and you're on Facebook and all these people have all these different issues with their dogs and goggles and, you know, foot pads and, or whatever shoes for yep. them. And, yep. and, we had, I mean, you know, you'd have a dog with a sore foot every now and again, but like one time my one young pup ran by a jumping choya and it grabbed her on the back of the leg and, you know, then she freezes and mm. go up and you take it off. But that was, we had one dog with a a limp for a day or two and the rest of the time they just, they do well. It takes them a little while in Arizona to get used to the rough rocks. Uh, it can be kind of rough on their pads. But as far as the cactuses and everything, we had no issues anywhere. So, Our biggest issue that we actually had was uh, our first trip down, one of the dogs was hunting one of the washes. All of a sudden, he comes running back to us and Tony and I like, what is he doing? Why is he running like that? We look behind him and there was about six of the craziest looking wild cows you've ever seen in your life charging right <laughs> behind him. So. We both thought we were going to have death by goring to death by wild Arizona cows, but uh-huh. <laughs> we survived. When uh, when you're hunting all these different species, are you guys using the same shotgun, choke, um, ammunition across all of the different quail that you're hunting? 
Yeah, pretty much. We run between seven and a half to eight shot for mm-hmm. the quail. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't need anything too big for killing them. And I always run one choke. I don't know about Tyler, but I just had one choke in the whole time for the quail. Usually a pretty open choke because they're close by you. And usually they're gone before they're a long ways away. In in Nebraska, I found I would put in kind of a low base number six. Mm. Uh, and then that way, if a pheasant gets up at close range, you have enough power to knock him down. Or if it's Bob Whites, you're not going to rip him in half. Mm-hmm. And so you do that a little bit uh, with the Bob Whites. And then like if you're hunting the valley quail and you might get into chuckers or something, I'd go to a, a light number six. But for the most part, seven and a half does the trick. All right, fellas, we'll start. We'll start with Brad, the professional guide, and uh, we'll we'll move to to Tyler second. As you think about our audience, pheasants forever and quail forever members, and and there's an awful lot of folks that um, are like you, fellas, in you know Montana and the Dakotas, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, and kind of the heart of pheasant country, and they've heard these series of podcasts we've just done on all these Western quail species. And um, it's really exciting to think about, you know, adding some of these trips, um, you know, to a bucket list and knocking some of them down. When you think about coaching other people have never done this before, what sort of recommendations would you give them about approaching taking a hunt um, and we don't have to knock down the whole slam, but if, you know, people want to go to the West and chase quail, what do you think, Brad, what would you tell them as uh, bits of advice? Uh, I would definitely say that now you're at more of an advantage than a hunter would be say early two thousands. Um, there is hours upon hours worth of reading online that you could do, uh, Google searches, all that stuff. Tyler, Tyler likes to do that. He plans out and researches and reads everything. And I'm just kind of sitting there like, mm, we're leaving in two days. This is going to be sweet. I wonder what we're going to find. <laughs> Tyler's got lists and notes and notes for his notes. And he's got strategy plans. And it's like a football coach's planner. I mean, he's got like hunts drawn up and all sorts of stuff. And we're going through plays with him. And, <laughs> so, I mean, it's the the modern day upland bird hunter is at a major advantage compared to 10 years ago versus now with just the amount of online reading you can do. YouTube videos, I mean, you name it. YouTube's really awesome because you can just YouTube, Merns hunting, boop, that pops up and you can click through four or five different videos, just see the type of country they're hunting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that was the essential thing that I kind of noticed Um I don't know what Tyler thinks, but that's what I noticed was the birds were kind of in very specific um, habitat types. And once you found that habitat, you'd be driving down the highway and whoop, oh, there's some more of it right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas we'd Google Earth and you kind of get like a rough idea with the Google Earth. But when you really boots on the ground, figuring out where you're going and we definitely had a couple hikes where we do death marches and not talk to each other for about half an hour to an hour when we get back into the pickup. It Whereas, is uh, it is funny how the two of you are kind of different sides of the same coin, right? Like oh, you, yeah. you really different personality. You talk about, you know, Tyler's the one that does all the planning and you're, you're kind of the, you know, react in the moment, the spontaneous one, the storyteller, mm-hmm. you know, Tyler is a little bit more methodical in his approach. Um, I bet you that's that, that combo has really served you both pretty well when you're taking trips like this beyond just the planning versus the spontaneity, you guys figure different things out when you approach a hunt, don't you? Definitely. Yeah. We've got, it took a little while, but we definitely <laughs> both have characteristics that complement the other and we figured out how to hunt very well together and uh like nebraska we'd be sitting in the hotel room playing phone call roulette somebody'd find a phone number and call it and throw the phone to the other person and we'd have to answer it (laughs) see if we could go hunting or that type of thing so yeah definitely throughout the past three winters i'd say definitely we've we've grown a lot together and and uh it's pretty cool to be able to go travel all over across the country and uh be able to say I've done all this stuff with my brother. Tell me about phone call roulette a little bit more. That is that. So you mentioned hunting private land in Oregon. 
And I kind of automatically assumed that you might know somebody that had connections. But uh, now I'm thinking you guys are finding private landowners and knocking on doors and um, maybe using plat maps and, and Onyx to, to actually ask permission. Um, Todd, yeah, definitely. Yeah, go ahead, Brad. Uh, when we were in not so much Oregon, uh, but Nebraska was definitely we'd and the main thing was for prairie chickens. So we, we found a totally different species after we got our uh, pheasants and quail. We're all, well, we're here. Let's let's kill these two and mm. or try to. That was that was the emphasis was try to on those <laughs> ones. Um, so we yeah, we we'd find a spot with birds and and then we'd both start Google searching in the first and I mean you gotta call three or four phone numbers before one finally works. But <laughs> as soon as it started ringing, we'd throw the phone to the other person. And, have to <laughs> and who's got a better batting average in getting to, uh, successful permission? Down there, it didn't really matter. Really? Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right, Tyler, give me uh, give me your nugget. What what coaching advice would you offer the pheasants forever and quail forever listeners out there? You just got to go do it. There's there's so many resources now, like what Brad was saying, hunt maps, base maps, all these different apps on your phone that you can use. You can also go Arizona Game and Fish has a great website. Nebraska Game and Fish has good websites. Uh, you can get lots of information there, but you just, you got to just muddy the waters and go do it. I mean, we had no idea what we were doing. We're driving, oh, I think it took us 17, 18 hours to get to Nebraska. We slept in Sydney on the way down there and then, mm. you know, had to go hit the Cabela's headquarters up and it's not as great as it used to be. But then you, from there, you just kind of make a plan. And we ended up uh, staying at a hotel and one night we're chatting with these guys and they had seen us on Facebook, our picture of our slam. And then we got talking with them. And I mean, you meet people now mm -hmm. we're, now we're friends with them. We share hunting stories with them. And there's, it's about more than just the hunting. You meet people all over the place. And uh, ne Nebraska is really like, you want to go somewhere and feel good when you leave, go to Nebraska because the one, what we were having this year was a little tough there uh, as far as bird numbers and pressure and everything and the weather. Uh, but we finally found some birds the last day of the trip and uh, a guy at the gas station congratulated us on having a good, good hunt that day. Thanked us for coming to Nebraska to hunt mm. and uh, just makes you feel good when people are excited about what you're down there doing and they're friendly and nice. Uh, when you talk to people about getting permission on their place, they chat with you for a while and they tell you about bird numbers and what it was like when they were kids and uh, something you don't see too often anymore. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier we did have we did have one spot where we broke down in the pickup, and uh, so he wanted to go walk the dogs while we're waiting for this guy to come bring us some tranny fluid, and uh, we get a hold of this farmer's wife, and she rolls up in the pickup about ten minutes later just to check and make sure we were still okay after we talked to her and told her where we were at and where we were broke down. Wow. So it's it's refreshing. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned earlier Nebraska's. Uh, walk-in program, their open fields and waters program, is at the top upper echelon of walk-in programs in the country. The, the the component of improving the land for habitat, in addition to opening up for access, particularly in the southwest corner of that state. Um, you're right on with Nebraska. There's a lot of really fun opportunities to chase all sorts of different things down in, in Nebraska. Um, when you think about, and we'll start with Brad, when you think about all these species of quail, when you eat them, can you tell the difference between them? And is there one that stands out the most for you? You can definitely tell. Cleaning them mostly is where we notice the difference. Uh, the mountain quail have monster uh, breasts on them. They got a lot more meat on them than, say, the merns do. But uh, as far as flavor i can't i can't really say that i noticed too much of a difference yeah tyler i'd agree their mountain quail are a little bigger and scale quail are a little uh for arizona they're much bigger than the gambles but they all taste the same to me 
That's scaled scaled quail are a lot better to eat because you feel a lot more satisfied after killing <laughs> a scaled quail because they're so brutal to hunt. You probably took a shot of tequila after your first bite too, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> All right. So uh, as we we begin to wrap up, uh, you guys have invited Mr. Harvey on your next trip, uh, and I'm we mentioned. So your very next trip, which is only hours away, is turkey hunting. But what I want to hear about is next year. So who who's going to tell me about the Alaska adventure that you guys got coming up and why you invited Harvey with you? Well, that's it's not a totally planned trip yet, but we'll see what happens. I, I Brad's busy, and I've always wanted to go hunt ptarmigan, so I got a, a buddy from Boise that thought he'd want to go with me, and it's still in the planning phases. We're thinking of going. We have a contact up there that uh, has offered to kind of show us around and, and show us how to get ptarmigan. He says he has killed all three species. It's hmm. kind of been something I've always read about and heard about as a kid. I've, I've read some different uh, books, you know, about Alaska and people settling up there and all this and that. But we'll see if it really happens. Chad had mentioned that he had interest from people in starting a chapter up there and getting a pheasants forever chapter quail forever chapter going and i said well heck you can i mean you just tell everybody it's a work trip you might as well come and he just outed you chad yeah we're trying to make it work but it's it's definitely going to be more planning and and figuring it out you know if we're going to how many dogs to take and if we're going to fly them and how that all works Mm. and I, i haven't looked into that too much yet so it's it's still an idea and we got some dates picked out and this and that, but hopefully it'll come together. And Brad said, little brother, Brad little said brother hasn't committed to it. Oh, all you got to do is say caribou and little brother will be there. I know. Yeah. That's all it takes for me is caribou and I'd be down, but he's still on the fence about it. Cause little brother hasn't committed to go protect him the whole trip. So I'm <laughs> not sure if he's going to <laughs> uh, that, that is a good plug though. Actually we did have a chapter in Alaska that was active until about five years ago. So if anybody out there is listening from Alaska and have interest in being involved with Pheasants Forever and want to give us a reason to come up there in the fall, get in touch. And, and how do they reach out to you, Chad? Uh, you could you can find that contact for any rep on the pheasantsforever.org website, but uh, pretty easy. My name's Chad Harvey. Shoot me an email, crv at pheasantsforever.org. And it's C-H, um, uh, yeah, C-H-A-R-V-E-Y at pheasantsforever.org. And, and you cover Montana, Oregon, Washington, and Alaska. Idaho and Alaska. And and Idaho Canada. And Alaska. There we go. There we go. Uh, all right. Let's, let's, let's go around the horn for, for closing thoughts. Uh, uh, the quail slam episode with our, our Heine brother volunteers from Montana. Let's start with Brad closing thoughts on, on, uh, taking a trip like this uh, to chase all these different quail species. What, what, um, what's your best memory out of all of this? Oh boy. Best memory. I, I don't know. Kind of the first, the first year that we did it was kind of, so I think it was uh, not this fall, but the fall previous uh, when Spud locked up on point, that's the dog that we killed every bird. Well, we have killed every species of every bird off of point. Wow. Both Tyler and I, um, of, of quail anyways and uh the kind of the pinnacle was watching him lock up on point uh in this patch of brush and it was just i mean there's this patch of brush he's standing on the edge of the field tyler's point and i'm looping around this way and it's just like game on like we know these are quail this is this is it and uh just kind of the, the covey rose and i think there was like 12 birds and tyler and i each shot a an awesome male Bob white out of the covey. And it was just like, we're both standing there holding our quail and we're done. Like we did it together. It's spud. So with spud with spud. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't know how many other kids my age, I was 25 when I completed it Mm. and uh, just kind of being able to have the job and, and the privilege of being able to go do something like that. Mm -hmm. And, the brother to be able to help it all. Like we would have never done this without him. And just like probably he would have never done it without me. And uh, just kind of, 
how cool it all was and, and surreal and it all came together. And then actually on that same trip, I did kill a prairie chicken as well, mm. which I'd never really heard of them until we went there. Uh, Tyler had known tons about them, but uh, kind of killing the prairie chicken was just a cool story in and of itself too. And just being able to experience all that with my brother and then show our dad and our other brother, some of the hunts that we've done and, and various other people. It's, it's pretty special stuff. It's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, if folks want to connect with you, maybe go on a guided fishing trip or a hunting trip uh, sometime. How do they find you, Brad? They can either send me an email, uh, bradheine00 at gmail.com, and heine is H-E-I-N-E. Or uh, I do have an Instagram as well. Uh, heine Master is my Instagram. So H-E-I-N-E Master. <laughs> And, uh, or just type in Brad Heine on Instagram and I'm sure it'll come up, yeah. but I'm always posting videos and stories of various different hunts and you name it. Uh, I'm trying to keep everybody updated pretty well on my social media page. And, and do you guide, uh, upland bird hunts in Montana as well? I have connections to guide upland bird hunts. I, I could, uh, but I'm, I'm usually pretty busy with the deer and the fishing okay. at that time of year. Okay. Uh, Tyler, what's your best memory out of all these trips? It's hard because there's a lot and they all blur together. Um, I think it's every, every time you go on a trip and you, and you get that first big male mature bird and you just can admire them They're each quail is unique in its beauty mm-hmm. and, and they're all for being all the same species or whatever, then they all yet look so unique. I mean, it's hard to beat the male merns for how beautiful they are, but then the mountain quail is, he's more simple, but gosh, they're very striking also. Hmm. And then the Bob white, which was the hardest one for us, that moment that Brad was talking about was kind of, that was a pretty special moment. You get, you know, you got good dog work, you got the birds down and, you know, we're in the middle of a 14 mile walk day and, Hmm it all finally came together. It was because I'm the planner. It was a little, you know, pressure, the pressure was taken off. So that's funny that you're the planner. He's the guide. So Brad, when you're, when you're guiding, I'm assuming you got to do a little bit more planning. Yeah. Oh yeah. A little bit. So, but that's what we always tell everybody that that's why I'm such a good guide is because I've had all these years of practice with him. <laughs> uh, I've really enjoyed talking with you, fellas. Uh, it, it's re- really appreciate what you do as volunteers for the organization and and the fun that you uh, you brought to this episode talking about the uplands and the quail slam. Uh, I'm sure it would be a blast to be on a trip with you. Uh, I'll I'll let. I'll let Chad tie a bow on this, put a closing thought on this episode. He has the privilege of working with you guys uh, uh, from a volunteer perspective. And I know, you know, in Montana, living in Montana, he's, he truly has the best job in the world because he gets to live in Montana and do this for a living. Put a bow on this for us, Chad. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And it's, it's actually really fun to sit back and listen to this episode because Although I was invited to go on this trip, I wasn't able to make it, and that made me a little even more jealous and, and want to go next time. But I literally picked up a new puppy the day they were leaving for Arizona and decided not to throw him uh, throw him to, to, a, to a dog watcher for a few weeks. But um, I've been hunting with these guys a number of other times, and, and like you say, they're certainly different, but great people to hang out with, great people, uh, great volunteers to have for Pheasants Forever. And and, and different. Tyler's a little more laid back with me. Brad's a little bit more serious about it. And we were out goose hunting a few years ago. And uh, I think there's someone else in the blind with us. Of course, Brad's doing all the calling, calling all the shots. And Tyler and I are just sitting there. A nice group comes in, cups their wings. You know, Brad yells, take them. And the four of us stand up and shoot. And I think out of this group, we got one goose. Whenever the, when, all the, when all the smoke goes away, Brad looks and goes, what didn't you understand about take them? <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah it's it's a lot of fun hunting with these guys and, and during covid we weren't able to get together as much so i hadn't even actually heard these stories yet I'm looking forward to going out and turkey hunting this afternoon but uh as the you know a, a, a mixed bag species hunter myself not just for birds uh it, it really warms my heart i think to be on a pheasants forever podcast and i'm pretty sure this is the first time you've probably got a detailed sheep hunt 
talking about <laughs> coos deer, javelina, and upland birds all in the same podcast. And I keep mm. telling the people that's what's awesome about the West. Um, mm. You can come out here for any single thing, but if you put some work into it, you put some thought into it, you can come out here and do it all on, on one trip in just about any given state. Yeah, that I, I think you're right. This is uh, earns the distinction with the first uh, mixed bag of this variety for sure. Um, and guys, I I really hope that you do get the ptarmigan caribou Alaska trip together and and send me some photos and then we'll do a podcast about that as well because that that's at the top of my bucket list is to do the ptarmigan hunt. But I want to do that with my own darn dog and I you know, from Minnesota to Alaska, I just, I haven't quite figured that one out yet in terms of driving and, or flying and boy, but that's something that, um, I think in a universally, when I talk with folks that walk in the tundra with their own bird dog, trying to, to put a ptarmigan, because they, what I hear is they're not that real difficult to find or to hunt. It's just getting there that's real difficult. Um, so I hope that you guys knock it down and uh, can convince me to go do it next year too. So I really appreciate um, you guys spending the time and and most importantly, Tyler, for being chapter president and volunteer. Uh, I just thrilled to have you in the ranks of a volunteer. It makes a big difference. So thank you. All right, folks, uh, that was a very fun episode with the Heine brothers. Heine master on Instagram. You can find Brad. I'm going to go look at what he's got on. Uh, I'm hoping to find that sheep on Instagram. Is it out there, Brad? It's on there. What, yep. How far back do we have to look to see that sheep? Who did it do? Let's see. You've got to... I'll make a new post with it here pretty soon. All right. Because I've never actually posted a picture with me and the sheep. All right. So it'll 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 be coming up. Heine H-E-I-N-E Master on Instagram. Yep. You'll see the sheep he told that wonderful story about. Tyler, are you on Instagram? I'm not. I gotta work. <laughs> I, I I have to keep the I gotta make money so I can go on these trips in the winter. <laughs> All so. right. Well, if in the meantime, if you create an Instagram handle, Brad'll tag you in the sheep account so people can follow you too. Chad, I know you're on Instagram. What's your handle? Yeah, mine is uh, at gundog arms. Um find me on there and then you can also follow uh montana pheasants forever on facebook we've got a website you know and go on and check out any events that we've got going on outstanding um all right fellas thank you very much uh folks thanks for listening i'm bob st pierre you can find me on instagram at pheasant bob um but i want to thank you most importantly for listening if you're not yet a member please join us at pheasantsforever.org or quailforever.org. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter, all those social accounts on the website as well. Um, final words of wisdom, always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks, folks. <laughs>